Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this month we have a veritable jack-of-all-trades, jack-of-all-theatrical-trades. His name is Pete Rush, and I don't think there's anything in theater that Pete hasn't done yet. He's, He's an actor, director, dramaturg from time to time, scenic and costume designer. He teaches theater. He's serving now as the arts program manager for the producing arm of Seattle Center, overseeing an arts access program for youth called Teen Ticks, doing their best to get teenagers exposed to art. Uh, He's also uh, coordinating entertainment for concerts at the Mural, for Winterfest, and for arts exhibits uh, here and there throughout Seattle. Speaking of art exhibits, Pete is also a freelance visual artist who specializes in installation art. We're lucky to catch up with Pete and snag some of his uh, very valuable uh, free time. And we decided, since we haven't had a costume designer on the show yet, I know, seriously, you would think by now, 80 episodes, but we'd start off with a little bit of costume design talk. And scenic design. You've been doing this for a number of years, at least as long as I remember knowing you way back in, you know, dear old Ithaca. Um, when you did a lot of stuff for the kitchen and for the hangar. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, I've been designing professionally for about 16, 17 years. How'd you break into that? Uh, very roundabout. Um, I sort of have always been interested in the theater, and I you, you know, graduated high school, and I went to college to become an actor. And I trained in a classical theater training program at Boston University. Um, and then, you know, you graduate college and you move to New York and you try to work as an actor and you hardly ever do. Um, but to stay engaged in the theater, I relied on other skills and interests that I have, which are more visual art based. And so I started doing props or working in a, a costume shop or, you know, doing some production management kind of thing. Um, and just learned or discovered that I had a lot of really interesting skills and interest in that area. So I started pursuing it more and more, and then people, you know, blindly gave me some opportunities to design, and it turned out pretty well. Um, And then, you know, once it's the kind of thing, once you do one thing, then someone says, oh, well, how about you do this next thing? And then work leads to more work, and before you know it, Mm -hmm. I kind of just put acting aside entirely and focused mostly on design. So I guess you're enjoying it. I am enjoying it. It's very much a good uh, mix of the, the two sides of my brain, which is the you know visual art side as well as the, my interest in telling stories and in theater. Um, design is really the, the great marriage of those two. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, as a costume designer, assuming that you have a budget in every theater that you go to, which is a big assumption a lot of times. Um, sure. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> Is there a certain kind of play you lean towards? Because I'm asking things like, Hmm. you know, period piece, like uh, 18th century Elizabethan, or do you tend towards, or do you have a preference for, let's say, something modern, like like West Side Story, or, I mean... Sure. Um, it's it, it definitely depends on the piece. I'm most attracted to the work of art, what it, whatever the play or musical is that we're working on. And if I'm if I really have an access point or a connection to that piece, I'm willing to go to any period whatsoever. Um, I what I get asked to do a lot um, is a lot of big, sweeping Shakespearean um, epic drama. 
you know, casts of thousands where you know, there's soldiers and armies and royalty and, and spear and, and thrower number kind of six. Stuff. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I'm very good at, um, you know, finding ways on a, a, a small budget to sort of make a big impact and, you know, costume a lot of people and deal with, you know, one actor who plays six different roles throughout one production, that kind of thing. Um, personally, I, I, I actually really enjoy working on modern, you know, plays for two reasons. Um, just more and more and more the way that the world is going these days and the state of affairs in this country, um, you know, to, to work on theater that is just light and, and frothy and, and pure entertainment is really unsatisfying to me. Um, it, it feels important as an artist to sort of tell the story of uh, that, that, that's really relevant to what's going on in our lives right now, politically, socially. Um, and so modern pieces tend to address that, you know, more, more directly, obviously. Um, but also with a modern play, you're not you're able to sort of dig really deep into the minutia of a character, especially with costume design, um, where it becomes really about subtle choices, you know, the pattern on a tie, the way, you know, the, what kind of shoes that they wear, um, the, the things that when you're doing big sweeping period stuff, you know, you, you just have to sort of gloss over and get the big picture. But right. with modern work, I find that I can just really, really um, get into the, the, the small things that really make a person a person. Give me an example. What have you worked on that um, you had to put that kind of attention yeah. towards? Um, well, I, I, I'll use an example that um, I, I did a play called Rapture, Blister, Burn at Act Theater in Seattle. I've been hearing and about that one. There was one yeah, it's a really fascinating play. It, it, it tackles a lot of sort of gender and feminism issues. Um, and uh, there was one reviewer of that piece who pointed out the fact of my choice in shoes for all of these actors, that every character had the perfect shoe for their character on. <laughs> um, and it's that kind of thing. Like, you know, if you put, uh, you know, a guy in a pair of Tevas, that says one thing. If you put him in, you know, a combat boot, it says an entirely different thing about that person. Um, and while either could conceivably work, it's the collaboration between myself and the director and the actor that, you know, we get to a point where we're having conversations and discussions and figuring out, is he a plaid person or a striped person? You know, is he black and white or is he like color? Um, all those little things, um, I think, help the actor really feel comfortable in that role and helps them embody that role better. Um, and also, it gives you visual information that, as an audience member, the second you see somebody walk out in those Tevas, you're like, I know what kind of person that is. Sure, yeah. Well, Tevas are pretty And that's obvious, something yeah. that's not – yeah, that's something that's not in the script necessarily, but it, it just helps deepen an audience's understanding of, of character. Hmm. Is there any particular article of clothing, physical adornment that you would look at first to transmit – the idea of a particular character to the audience. I mean, you were talking about shoes. I mean, uh, an actor yeah. comes out in a pair of Tevas. Okay, we make an assumption about him. Um, yeah. But is it shoes for you, or or is it is there anything that you hmm. look at first to say, you know, how can we get uh, you know Julius Caesar across to whoever? And then right. Julius Caesar is a terrible example, but pick something right. intelligent. Yeah. Um... I think footwear definitely does make sense. Um, 
I, I think it's less an, a specific article of clothing and more maybe a color palette. Okay. I think I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, what color is this person? Um, yeah, and, you know, that, again, you know, warm personality versus cold personality versus loud versus understated. You know, there's a lot of qualities that, that are associated with color. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely th- – and then the balance of color across the stage, you know, with all these different characters and all these different people. Um, and especially how that then lives on top of a set. Um, right, and, and how lighting impacts all of that, you know. So I definitely spent a lot of time thinking about the color palette of a show. So you basically have to work with all the designers to make sure. Oh, that definitely. This, this goes very much. A, yeah, yeah. It's very much a collaborative process in terms of we're all sharing our ideas from the very beginning and sharing the progress of our designs. And, you know, I see what the, the, the scenic designer is doing and I'm saying, oh, I love what you're doing there with that color situation or with that texture on that back wall. How can I design something that's going to either complement it or more often than not, it's stand up, out, apart from it, you know, so things don't blend in and get lost. Mm-hmm. And then it's always once you get in the tech rehearsals and you're in the room with the lighting designer, it's always an uh, ongoing conversation about, you know, their choice of color and how much light they're using, et cetera, to sort of really show off these costumes to the best that they can be seen. It's it's a really intricate process. And I've always been fascinated with the whole tech side um, and the design side of yeah. theater, um, none of which I really am. So therefore, it becomes much more interesting to me how the folks I almost never see, I mean, aside from when I'm a director, yes, I see them. But when I'm an actor or, right. or um, to me, I meet with the co- you know a costume person once or twice and there I am pushed out on stage and then light showers me and then I have to figure out where, you know, the set pieces are going to be. So by the time, yeah. you know, uh, this, this hapless actor walks out on stage, everybody else has come together. And you do scenic design also. I do, yes. And and so um, how does that work with your costume design persona? I mean, does one right. work off of the other or, or well, there's they're they're related. Um they are very different muscles that I'm flexing when you when you're designing a set versus a, a set of costumes. Um um but for me especially as a scenic designer, I like to, you know, produce sets that are very inhabited by actors or manipulated by the actors. Um, so there's definitely a sense of movement to them. Um, mm-hmm. There's a way that actors are interacting with things, whether that really be physically they're moving flats and opening doors and jumping off platforms and stuff like that. Or if it's just how, you know, they're placed on the set, you know, the kind of stage pictures that they create um, by doing that. Um, you know, so I'm definitely focusing a lot on that when I'm designing scenery. When I'm designing costumes, uh, I, I rather enjoy the the, collabor- the actor-designer collaboration. Again, it goes back to how do we best illuminate this character. Right. And so I think my background as an actor really helps in this situation because I have a language of which to communicate with actors about. You know, I can talk the way that they talk. And I can understand um, their process, so I can understand how the clothes really make a difference for them. Um, there's always a moment um, when you're doing costume fittings where you, ha- you bring an actor in, you, you, know, you throw some clothes on them, 
and they stop and they look in the mirror and then suddenly their body shifts and their attitude sort of changes and you just see them sink into this character. You just sort of see it come to life right in front of your eyes. Their body in a way that the they costume. didn't. Yeah, well, and their attitude and everything does. Um, you know, once they see themselves as how that person is going to look, they have much more information about who that person is. And they can just then really embody it more. And that's really a dream and, and, and a really a delight for me as a designer to have that kind of influence over an actor's performance. Yeah. You know, just by putting them in clothes, seeing that character come to life is really extraordinary. Well, you're, I mean, you're literally visually turning them into someone yes. completely different. Yes. Okay. So you're changing their persona. You're, you're helping the actor, yes, find the character. But right. it, I think it goes just, I mean, a little bit deeper than that in, in the sense that once the actor steps into these clothes, they now feel that they have a responsibility to act the way the person who should be wearing those clothes would act. Right. And it, it's, the, it's the, the biggest way that they can differentiate themselves from the character that they're playing, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm putting them in something that they maybe would never ever wear um and so you know once you put that on then they're like oh yeah i suddenly feel like this person feel and that person is different than me it's got to be interesting to watch somebody change not just their personality but their physicality i mean it's again rising it's to the, yeah rising to the to to the costume i know it's it's happened to me on at least one occasion where uh, I was I was dressed up as a uh, um, a judge from the 1920s in okay. clothes that were archaic, and I look in the yeah. mirror, and all of a sudden it's like I'm not this person. I need to find out who this person is fast. Yeah, yeah. Especially when dealing with period work, I mean, mm. the clothes have so much to do in terms of how you carry yourself and how you know you hold your arms, you sit, you stand, you walk. Um, it definitely um, the, the the garments can influence, you know, all of that as well. Right. I've had actors say to me, you know, more often than not, if it's like spear head, you know, spear carrier number two, you know, it's like a small part of which they have the actor doesn't really have a sense of characterization about it, mm-hmm. and they come into a fitting and I put them on something and they're like, "Thank you, Pete, for helping me understand who this person is." Like once I put this clothing on, yeah. now I suddenly have a character. Now I can actually go back into the rehearsal room and play something because before I just you know they were just lines that I were reciting. Right, they're imagining so it. That's it's, been, yeah. Now now it's real. Yeah. Um, yeah. let's, let's, let's change tack here just a little bit. Uh, let's say okay. completely anyway, but, um, you're an installation art creator. Okay. Yeah. And for those folks out there who don't understand installation art, because we see art hung on walls, we see statues popped onto plinths and right. It's, installation art is a completely different thing. You're creating and it literally creating an entire world, almost a, a microcosmic world. And yeah, it's definitely an environment, right? That mm. is multisensory, and it, it usually invites the viewer to step into it and you know surround themselves with it or consume themselves with it. And it can include you know sight, sound, touch, you know feel, all of that stuff. Right. Um, so I, I enjoy it because it's a little bit more of a comprehensive sensory experience. Um, 
and it's very theatrical in nature uh, in the sense in, in some ways it's like creating you know scenery for a, a play it's like you you're creating a, a very different world that's fake or that's suggested or that's artful in some way it's heightened you know it's not just real life it's heightened reality it is it, it's i was thinking about it earlier today and it occurred to me that you know uh, we go see these statues on plinths we go see these pictures on the wall and our senses bring the art into us okay mm-hmm. Tran- transmit that that particular whatever it happens to be into the brain um, mm-hmm. installation art does the exact opposite the art mm. brings us into it okay yeah. now all of a sudden we are 360 surrounded by whatever it is that has come out of Pete Rush's brain. Right. All right? Or Pete Rush's heart, or wherever it happens right. to come from. Um, and aside from that observation, it, it's I'm, how long does it take you to put together one of these things? Uh, I, I know you've done uh. more than a few... <laughs> Well, it it, it depends. I mean, it depends on the scope, the scale, you know, the size of the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the creative process is really just about mulling it over and thinking. And um, I would say more time goes into that than the actual physical time it takes to install something or right. build something. Um, you know, it's really a lot about conceiving it and about thinking about the materials you're going to use and the way that you're going to build something or use those materials. Um, so, it, and then you, you know, you, you, you walk in with like the best plan that you can have. And then you, you know, you walk into your space and start creating something. And of course you run into challenges. Oh, this doorway is suddenly not the size I thought it was, or there's this column in the space that I didn't know existed. And so you have to kind of then punt and, you know, take the groundwork that you have in the, in the framework and then, you know, play and riff off of it. And, and so that's exciting to sort of end up with something that isn't exactly planned, but mm. is exactly what it needs to be, you know, depending on, on where you're working. Give us an idea. Um, what's one of the uh, – I'm sure they're all challenging, but I'm just going to say this for whatever. One of the more challenging installations that you've done, what was it? What was the process, and what kind of sure. adjustments did you have to make? Yeah. I did um, a piece called My Refuge, which was at the, the Clinton House. It was an art space that was in that building for a while. Um, and it was basically a room within that room. I uh, built a wood timber structure, which looked like an A-frame house. And then from all of that, from that, I hung a series of woven paper and cardboard tapestries, which are some signature um, art pieces that I've made throughout the years. Um, so a piece like that, um, you know, took months of conceiving, um, took years actually to accumulate all of the artwork that then, you know, was hung off of it. Um, and probably took at least one full week to just install alone. Um, you know, working in that space day and night. Right. Um, and, um, you, you know, I think one of the particular challenges of that was lighting, um, you know, because I built this great structure and then I covered it with all this great art. And then I realized that I'd created sort of this dark little cave. <laughs> and I was like, well, how do, uh, you know, people can't see this because all the lighting goes outside the structure when I really right. need lighting on the inside of the structure. Um, so then, you know, I was a trip to the before. hardware store, and mm. a bunch of clip lights later, and suddenly, you know, you have you have some light. But, 
you just kind of have to figure it out as you go. It seems to me that the, the, the choices involved with a full installation, because they're always complex, okay? Yeah. Um, well, no, that's not true. They're not always complex. To me, they always seem complex because it always seems like there's a lot going on. If I'm going to put my body with literally within somebody else's artwork, okay, or mm-hmm. creation or vision of a world that, you know, I, I've never even conceived of, uh, conceived of, to me, there's always an avalanche of visual and, and oral AURAL stimuli um, mm-hmm. that I actually have to t- you know, take some time and try and internalize or in, attempt, in an attempt to understand it in a sense. Right. I do think that installation art demands more of the viewer than, you know, regular two-dimensional art. A lot of two-dimensional art, you can look at it, and within a minute, you're like, okay, I see what it is. It's representing this. I get it. I can move on to the next piece. Um, But as a viewer in an installation, you do have to sort of linger a little longer. You have to let it wash over you. Um, often there's just a lot of elements to take in, not just that one thing that you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, perspective, whether you're standing close or far away or from the side or something can definitely influence how you're experiencing it. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's a little bit more of a in-depth, well-rounded sort of art form. Right. One, I'm, one of the most amazing installation works of art that I've ever walked through was indeed one of yours. And you did it through an entire barn. This was a Halloween oh, yeah. party. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Our Halloween barn bashes were pretty legendary. Mm, yeah. That was, uh, uh, th- that was an experience. There were just so many things going on there that went from the sublime to the, Unbelievably, yes, yes, without a <laughs> yeah. doubt. Um, the I, I, the baby room still sticks with me. But, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, we had an entire um, uh, uh, refrigerator filled with um, you know doll parts, bloody right. doll parts. I, I, I believe me, I remember that. Yeah, and then finding a <laughs> way to that to that inner sanctum on this. I think it was on the second floor. With through you know these corridors made with sheets and and other things yeah like that. yeah it's sort of like a maze of of which we're actually depriving you of one of your senses which yeah. is sight because everything was really really dark and forcing you to rely on you know your sense of touch or hearing or just your spider sense to sort of wind your way through that maze it was particularly creepy I, I mean I enjoyed it um, but it was it was definitely had that creepy Halloween. Are you, are you still doing anything like that? Um, since moving to Seattle, I, I don't have a venue of which to sort of create something like that, unfortunately. So it's been a while. It has been, you know, a decade or so since I've gotten to play in a large barn-like space like that. You should play in a large space like a barn again. Yeah. Yeah. But honestly, I've been, I've been looking at your, your bio and your resume. And as I said earlier, um, you seem to be one of the... <laughs> the busiest people uh, I, I can find at this particular point, just to, just to go through a couple of things here for the audience. You're working as an arts program manager for Seattle Center, uh, overseeing an art access program for youth called Teen Ticks. You're coordinating element, uh, uh, entertainments for concerts at the mural, doing Winterfest, arts. Uh, it's, 
Do you sleep? Do you eat? I do, you, you yeah, I do change sleep. your clothes. That's maybe my secret is that I tend to get eight hours of sleep every night. Um, um, because without that, I don't think I could do the volume of work that I do. But the reality is, yes, I pretty much work all the time. I work day, I work nights, I work weekends. Um, you know, even when I'm not working, I'm thinking about work. Um, it, it's it's a it's a love hate relationship. I mean, I'm obviously very passionate about the work that I do. Right. Um, and but at the same time, you know, I think about. That, you know these people who have you know normal nine to five work days and have evenings off and stuff like that, and I'm kind of jealous of that kind of thing. Um, but in those periods where I don't have a lot of work going on and I have a break and I I can have ni- a nine to five, I'm bored. You know, I'm not satisfied. I have to always be creating or doing something. So I think it's just in my nature to keep working. I think it sounds like a, a a wonderful gig. I'm sure you have some kind of a social life mixed in there somewhere. Absolutely. When you work really hard, you also have to play really hard. That's definitely part of my successful balance. Um, So for sure. Good. Yeah. Um, Let's kick back towards Teen Ticks. Uh, It's arts access program for youth. Okay. It's um, yeah. Again, we hear the argument that, you know, what do we teach our kids? How do we teach our kids? How do we give them aesthetic values in addition to cramming dates, figures, and names into their heads so they can pass standardized tests. Um, right. And we send them out into the world completely closed about anything. Um, I'm, I'm one of those lunatics who believes that, you know, arts education for the youth is more than mandatory. Okay. Um, right. So what is Teen Ticks and how do you, uh, how do you work this? Um, Teen Ticks is really a, a pretty extraordinary program. It's actually revolutionary, I think, and it's a model that I'd love to see replicated all over the country. Um, very simply, any teenager, 13 to 19 years old, can sign up for a free pass that gets them $5 admission to arts events. Um, so we partner here in Seattle with uh, uh, 64 different arts organizations, um, music, dance, visual art, literary arts, theaters. Um, it runs the gamut. And these kids can get day of admission. They can go and experience a work of art from Seattle Opera to Seattle Symphony to Seattle Art Museum to any of the number of theater companies here and they can you know just walk in, sit down, get a really great seat and watch a show for five bucks. Um, and the whole goal is really, if you look at our somewhat dying arts um, population, the people who are going to see the arts, you know, is, is graying and getting older and, right. and philanthropy is sort of drying up because younger generations aren't really being exposed to those same kind of art forms. But this program aims to combat that and to really foster the next generation of arts appreciators. Um, we firmly believe there are some people who are, are, are natural artists and will uh, benefit from learning arts skills, but we believe that everyone, no matter who they are, benefits from experiencing art because they're experiencing a social situation. They're experiencing life. They're, lo- they're talking about um, political issues, social issues, economic issues. They're looking at the world through a whole new lens. Um, and it empowers them to have a voice about it, to have an opinion about the art that they're seeing and know that what they think and how they feel and what they experience is valid. Um, 
So the program, you know, in addition to just the five dollar tickets, we have uh, sort of a youth leadership training program that goes along with it. We have a a, a young writers workshop that teaches um, arts criticism, so the kids are writing critically about art and thinking about it. Um, and uh, it, it, it and also is trying to instill the value of philanthropy so that young people, when they get to a point where they have some means, can then give back, contribute back to the arts sphere, um, not only just by attending the arts, but also, you know, maybe through, you know, private donations and so on, and just help that community continue and thrive for the generations to come. That sounds incredible. Um, how many kids do you have enrolled, uh, enrolled in this? Or? Oh, goodness. Um, at any given time, there is probably like 50,000 teenagers in the greater 50, Seattle area who have yeah. taken advantage yeah. of this program who have a pass um, we facilitate the sale of you know 12 to 1500,000 uh, tickets a year mm-hmm. um, so yeah it's it's extraordinary large numbers of teens are taking advantage of this um, and uh, you know we're Often we're preaching to the choir. A lot of the teens who are using it are the arts-interested kids. Right. Um, but a lot of our work is really about reaching out to those underserved populations. How do you do that? Um, who don't necessarily have parents or a support system that is encouraging them to go to the arts and really getting them interested and in breaking down the barriers, whether it be cost or transportation or just fear of the unknown, mm. um, and really giving them the, the voice and the 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 agency to sort of make some choices and go see art on their own. How do you reach a kid who's skeptical about that sort of thing? Because, you know, it's, it's right. arts are one thing and, you know, that some kids might have a stigma about it. Uh, you know, how, how do you go yeah. out and, and grab these guys? Or, I mean, the reality you know, like, is that the art speaks for itself. So if you just can get them in the door um, chances are they're going to have a positive experience with it. Right. And it's going to be impactful. Um, so the secret of getting them in the door is, A, removing as many barriers as you can for teen ticks. That's mostly cost. But, B, creating social situations where teens are, you know, going with other teens to go see this stuff. You know, if if my circle of friends is interested in something, I'm much more willing to take a, a risk and go along for the ride. Right. And then once I'm there, then I'm like, then it's easy to convert me. Um, so I think we we focus a lot on creating um, social situations at these arts events so that teens can really interact with each other. Cool. That seems like an awful yeah. lot of work. Um, there's a small team of people who, you know, are, are working on the project. We have a really robust advisory board and a board of directors. And, and again, we partner with 64 different arts organizations, all of which, you know, really also believe in our mission and see right. it as a crucial part of their audience development plan. So we have a lot of help. That's good. That's that sounds like a heck of a heck of a program. Um, that should be going around to other cities and becoming a staple of uh, of their arts yeah. education and cultural life. Um, yeah. sp- speaking about arts and cultural life, uh, I'm going to switch gears here again. You're currently involved in a play called Bad Apples. Bad Apples, yeah. It, it just opened on Friday a couple of days ago. What are you doing with um, that, and, uh, and what's it uh, about? I, yeah, it's, um, this is a pretty crazy show. I designed the costumes, um, and this is a, a new rock musical 
um, about a torture sex scandal at Abu Ghraib prison in 2003. Wow. Um, if you think back, CBS News uh, uncovered all of these thousands of photographs of, of, of prisoners and detainees at this prison being tortured and sexually abused and, you know, humiliated. Um, and it, it became this big national scandal in which suddenly the U.S. realized that, geez, we don't always have the white cap on. We actually can be pretty mean and, and horrible people sometimes. Right. Um, and this musical tem- attempts to really unpack that. Um, it follows – it's really a love story. It follows three soldiers well, well, at the Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. It's a love story <laughs> and a musical um, about Abu Ghraib. Yeah, yeah. I know. This is the, one of the most provocative pieces of theater I've ever worked on. It, we, pretty much every button that we could push, we pushed. Um, and so, you know, it, it talks about torture. It talks about sexism. It talks about deviant sexuality. It talks about um, politics and, and the government cover-ups. Um, it talks about, um, you know, drugs and, and religion. And, I mean, it, there's so much packed in there. Um, but, yeah, at the time what? there were these three soldiers who basically became the scapegoats. The, the government did a really good job at pushing the story underneath the carpet and blaming uh-huh. blamed it on these three sergeants, um, really low-level soldiers, um, and, 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 and put portrayed them as these bad apples who instigated all these crimes, when really we know it goes much deeper. It goes much higher up, Anybody all the way the to the president. Anybody read, uh, read the news reports knew that it went up and down the line like crazy. Yeah, it went yeah. all the way from the top, all the way down to the bottom. Absolutely. But you know, a lot of that news did not reach us here through mainstream media. You know, Correct. A, a lot of that was just, well, you know, it's it's as if it never happened. Right. So who right. who wrote this thing? Um, uh, it's um, a, a trio of writers. Jim Leonard is the playwright. Um, he he's written a lot of plays and currently writes a lot of film and TV stuff based out of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And then the music and lyrics are wrote by, written by a duo, Beth Thornley and Rob Cairns. Again, both LA folks who you know work a lot in the TV realm. Right. Um, the director is John Langs, and the. Uh, four of them teamed up to do sort of a, a smaller production of this in, in L.A. Uh, a handful of years ago. Um, and we revisited it here in Seattle this summer um, with, you know, new new songs, some new text, really retooling it um, to really kind of um, portray this. Um, you know, it's this thing that happened 13 years ago, but the themes and the, 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 the events are are still really relevant, are still going on right now, that it's, it's, it's kind of sad, it's kind of crazy, and it's really important to be talking about. Absolutely. So, um, obvious question, what kind of work did you have I mean, as a costume designer for this? I'm assuming there were army uniforms all over the place, but yep. and yep. There's uh, a little... traditional Iraqi wear, and how'd you, you know, mm-hmm. how'd you do the research on this, and how did you manage to put this all together? Well, the research part is easy because it's out there. I mean, the thing, this is a musical based on a series of photographs that exist. You know, you can look at these thousands of photographs and and just see exactly what they look like. Um, You know, that part wasn't hard. Um, The the challenge is that it's a three-act musical, so it's three hours long. Um, It's a cast of ten people. 
but they, they, everyone plays a slew of characters, and it moves in you know, breakneck lightning speed. So within these three hours, there are 109 costume changes. Ouch. Um, yeah. So my work is really about how do I get this one actor from a soldier to a suit to an Iraqi prisoner back to a white trash mom in Tennessee, back to a soldier, back to a suit, you know, in, in, in 20 seconds sometimes. You know, we had 20 mm-hmm. seconds to, like, change these people. Sure. Quick so it was, that was the hardest challenge is just really – it takes a lot of organization, a lot of paperwork, a lot of thinking in advance – and a small team of people backstage, you know, helping people change clothes, you know, all over the place. It seems highly complicated and incredibly yeah. busy. It's very but... fun. when you, If you go backstage at the end of the show, it's like a bomb went off back there because there's just, you know, clothing strewn all sure. over <laughs> the, the place. Yeah, because um, nobody hangs takes, up clothes. It takes after a good hour and a half to reset it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So what, uh, what's the audience reaction to this kind of show? Um, it's one of those plays that you either love it or you hate it. Um, And so it's been mixed, for sure. I mean, there are some people who um, just don't want to confront those kinds of harsh realities, and so they go in with a chip in the shoulder and just aren't uh, willing to to open themselves up and and, and consider it. Then there are other people who, uh, you know, really find it, delightfully subversive and and exciting in the way that it it, it 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 opens up this period of history in a musical theater format which seems so wrong right it seems like it would be you you we're making fun of the of the right. the subject matter by suddenly breaking into song about it but there's this the, the magic of musicals is that you know you're able to have much more of an emotional convey an emotional capacity through through music, I think, than you often are through spoken text. So I feel like we can actually dig deeper. We can get to more of an emotional core of this story because it is a musical. Um, and there's a lot of irony. I mean, blatant irony. There's one, Act 2 opens with a drinking song led by Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld. We're oh, basically inviting the audience to sing along with them, you know, pour another round, my friend. But by the end of the song, it devolves into waterboarding a prisoner. Right. You know, so we're, we're, we're constantly doing this thing where we're punching the audience in the face. You know, we get them sort of riled up and feeling good, and then we hit them with this harsh reality. And I think that that's really impactful. Well, you're basically blindsiding the audience. Uh, the, the impact yeah. of, of, of the topic change has got to resonate a lot harder when you're not expecting it, especially if it's something as horrible and as gruesome as what went on in Abu Ghraib. Because that's that's one of the most vile things that happened during that complete debacle of the the Iraqi war. And I don't think we've we've recovered from it. I think I think the scars are still there. Absolutely. I don't think we as a nation have really examined it. Well, we why I think we definitely haven't really torture either. Allow us that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a touchy subject. Speaking of touchy subjects, um, this is a rock musical, and mm-hmm. I think over the past number of years, I'm not going to say how many years, but I'm going to guess maybe twenty. There seems to okay. be a um, topical change with musicals. I mean, we remember musicals as you know during the '40s and '20s as being. Not all, you know, uh, particularly lighthearted, but I think the majority of them were, 
you know, uh, uh, lighthearted overall, but all of a sudden we've got mm-hmm. musicals such as, um, you know, Rent, which is depressing, and mm-hmm. uh, Les Miserables, which is really depressing, and Titanic, which I don't think I've ever seen mm-hmm. a snuff musical before, but I mean, that's, you know, are we, are the musicals right. and, starting and me- to reflect more and more of the dark side of our, of our culture and our nature? Well, I think um, musicals have always been America's, you know, most popular art form, right? And it, it's always musicals have always reflected the times. Um, think about Showboat, Porgy and Bess, you know, right. talking about race relations and things like that. Um, in the fifties and sixties, when a lot of you know these chestnuts that we think of, you know, it, it, those musicals were were were, were reflecting that. Now, in this day and age, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in our world culturally. And the music of our times, which tends to be more rock or rap in the case of Hamilton, something like that, um, is we're just using the vocabulary of our times to continue to tell stories that are relevant to our times. So I think we as a culture are just digging deeper into some of the darker sides of, of, of life. And, and so musicals aren't, you know, they can be an escape from that, but I also think they can be a great way to explore that. Cool. Yeah, they've they've definitely become a lot more topical, I think, and and well, maybe not more topical, but they seem darker these days, and it's just uh, right. It's yeah, it's it's an interesting trend. Uh, a couple of more questions, quick ones, and we'll get you out of here because I know you've had a long, hard day doing three thousand different things. Um, I did a lot of things today. Yeah, yeah. You have a day job, okay? As we talked about, arts program manager for Seattle Center where you do yep. not only teen ticks, but concerts, uh, Winterfest, arts exhibits on campus, many other mm-hmm. things. But you also have a thriving livelihood as a freelancer, which Correct. freelancing is tricky in the first place. Freelancing in the arts, which basically have no money right, or very mm-hmm. little money, is a heck of a lot tougher how do you manage to work as often as you do? How do you keep going as a freelancer? Uh, yeah. Well, I've been fortunate in that um, my career, especially here in Seattle, has sort of just really launched and taken off. And I'm, I'm in a position where I get, more, I get offers for work more than I can do. So I'm, I'm actually in a position where I'm turning down work. So that I have to just thank whatever gods are out there and say mm. thank you for that. Um, but I mean, the secret to, to be being a freelancer is extreme organization. <laughs> you know, you have your, your calendar is like what the most important, you know, go-to thing. Um, it's also about hustling. I mean, you can't, you can never stop looking for work. Even if you land a job, great, throw yourself into that job and, and, and produce, but at the same time, you still have to be looking for your next two jobs, you know, right? right. You can't just stop that process. Um, at least in the theater, it's, um, it is very much a who you know situation. Um, if you, you know, it, I work with the same directors all the time. I work with the same team of other designers all the time. And, you know, we, we develop a shorthand. We develop a, a system of working together that is easy and, um, and just really works for us. And so if you find yourself in that kind of situation, then every time that director is de- 
is directing something for a different company, they're like, I want my team to come along with me. I want Pete to be on this this project. I, you know, I want so and so. So I definitely rely a lot on forging really strong relationships with the directors that I work with, because that just leads to work. Um, and also, you know, this, uh, the other secret to getting asked back is to obviously to do a good job, is to, you know, produce something that's really solid, that's really strong and professional looking, that's within budget, and not be an asshole about it, you know, <laughs> to like work with the, the, the people that you work with in, in a really nice professional convivial kind of way if you know if you're a good fun person to have around then they're going to want to have you around so they'll ask you back um so that's one of the secrets the other you know the other key is just to be proactive and and to stay uh, aware of what's happening in the arts world around you and who are the companies that are doing the kind of work that are is interesting to you and you know what are the the pieces of, of theater that are uh, speak to you know your own vision, and then just approach those companies and approach those people making that art, saying I'm I'm really aligned with what you're doing, um, and I, I kind of want to contribute somehow. Um, usually, that you know that kind of enthusiasm and uh, works, and and it leads to something. Cool. Well, Pete Rush, it has been an absolute pleasure having this conversation with you. We thank you profusely for being uh, on on a stage, off stage, and. I hope you get some sleep. Uh, even though you said you get eight hours a night, it still seems like, wow. Um, you're cramming yeah. those other 16 hours with some really intense stuff. Sounds like all very good work that you're doing. And um, we wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been um, it's been fun to sort of just talk about what it is that I do. It's, it's um, never-ending joy for me, so I'm very, very fortunate to, to live and work in this arts world that I do. Um, it's, it's really a dream come true. Hey kids, thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater that we haven't yet covered, oddly enough, or know someone in the theater world who'd make good chat, please send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Our intro and outro music is Surf Far, Surf Good by the composer Steve Channon. You can hear more of his work on SoundCloud. Onstage Offstage wishes to let its listeners know that we believe in and advocate for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace, without fear. We believe in zero tolerance for acts of hate and bigotry. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people, no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender orientation. On Stage, Off Stage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again, and happy theatering to all of you. Mm-hmm.